Welcome to the Cycling Legends podcast interview show. My name is Chris Sidwells and my guest today is indeed a cycling legend. Six times Olympic and 11 times world champion and arguably the greatest track sprinter of all time, Sir Chris Hoy. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Good to see you, Chris. <laughs> great to see you. Last time we, we met, we were writing a book, weren't we? The, we were. Yeah, that was How to ride a bike. How to ride a bike. We used to sit in Buxton, Costa Coffee. <laughs> Planning it all out, writing the sections. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. I mean, that was, it was like it was only a couple of years ago, but it was a while back now, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was a while back. Yes, a lot's happened since then. I think, like you said, we, we need to have a plaque on the wall at the back of that cafe. That we used to <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and definitely. Creative. With the first thing I'm going to ask you, I mean, most of us cycling enthusiasts, 99% of cycling is on the endurance side, and sprinters are a completely different animal. Um, if you want to get straight drill into the physiology of sprinting, what's that difference? The first thing, one of the things you told me, as a sprinter can go, people have got pain caves, but sprinters' pain caves are far deeper than anybody else's. What's that well, about? You can just do yeah. Well, I guess, first of all, defining a sprinter, it, it's somebody who has genetically has a higher percentage of fast twitch fibres, muscle fibres, versus slow twitch fibres. So slow twitch fibres... It's about being efficient. It's about endurance. It's about transportation of, or the ability to transfer oxygen around the body and sustain a relatively low level of intensity for a long period of time. And, and the best endurance athletes are incredibly efficient at doing that. Fast twitch fibers are able to contract faster. They're able to contract more force. So jumping, throwing, sprinting, running, anything, lifting weights, anything that requires a short burst of extreme strength or power that's what you want the fast twitch muscle fibers for. And you can't, you, you can't change that essentially. It's, it's who you are. So everybody can become a better sprinter. Anyone can improve, but not everybody could become a world-class sprinter if they're not born with, with these genetics. So, you know, a, a cycling sprinter, the trouble is that people tend to get into cycling, as you say, into endurance cycling and, finding a cycling sprinter from an endurance, you know, the more endurance you do, the more you can deaden your sprint. Yeah. And therefore a lot of the best sprint cyclists haven't come from a traditional cycling background. They've come via BMX or they've come from a completely different sport from rugby, from football, from gymnastics, something else that, that requires a bit more power and speed. Um, so, you know, the, the, going back to your original question that having the ability to produce let's say 2,500 watts of power yeah. or for a peak or over 1,000 watts for a minute. The, as a byproduct of that anaerobic exercise, that, that exercising without oxygen, um, the lactate, the acidity in the blood goes through the roof and the pain that you can, that you can create. <laughs> and, you know, because I, you know, I used to talk to some of, the, some of the endurance riders and they're like, well, you know, I could do 12 sprints and, and you're only doing four. So, you know, we're working way harder. It's like, yeah, but the damage that we can do in that short space of time and yeah. the, the physiological response to that yeah. exercise, it's, it is hard to explain. You know, um, Mark Cavendish explained it in his, in his book, in his autobiography, talking about the difference between an endurance rider and a sprinter in, in the true sense, not a road sprinter, but like a, a pure track sprinter is that a, he would suffer, you know, an endurance athlete suffers for hours and hours on end, but the, the pain that you go through as a pure sprinter is, is like on a, another level. 
again. And it, but you only endure it for a few seconds, or you know, for a very short while. But yeah. it is—it's an intense pain of which I've never experienced elsewhere. It's—it's it's pretty horrible, and you, you're doing it to yourself, which is which is the the kind of weird thing about it. I mean, you, you described it to me once as, as having like having red hot barbed wire dragged through your veins. That level of yeah. So if you're let's say you're training for the kilo or you're yeah. training for the last lap of the team sprint, you have to do these repeated intervals where you're doing maybe thirty seconds sprinting, and then. Uh, a limited recovery you know but it's a ratio of one to two so 30 seconds on minute off and then you do four of those and you think well that that's not doesn't sound that bad it's only you know two minutes of effort and the first sprint is hard but it's not you're not absolutely gassed from it the second sprint you're really starting to feel it by the third sprint you think i've gone way too hard (laughs) and there's no way i can do this last one you know uh, it's just it's not physically possible you're starting to basically the, the, everything's starting to grind to a halt and the pain is already unbearable. And then the final sprint is, it's just a mind over matter thing. Graham O'Brien used to talk about dealing with pain and saying, you know, like in a pursuit, if he was head to head with his rival in the, the world pursuit final, talking about dealing with that pain, he said, it's like holding your hand in a flame and it's the first person who takes their hand out, loses, <laughs> loses the race. And yeah. it was, it's like that, but a battle with yourself in training. When you're doing these kind of efforts and training, these really horrible intervals, the lactate intervals, the tolerance intervals. It's about just not not letting the pain overcome you. You know, you've, you've, it sounds really, it, it is quite intense and it's weird how these sessions just happen in a, you know, in a quiet room with just your coach there or even by yourself. Yeah. There's no, no crowds cheering you on, nobody, you know, inspiring you to work harder, but you have to have that fire with, from within yeah. to work hard and to deal with that pain. And then you fall off the bike at the end of the set and you're, you're, you think, well, as soon as you stop pedaling, so if you're riding up a hill, you know, as an endurance athlete and you're suffering and your heart rate's near max and whatever, as soon as you back off, it gets easier. You're like, oh, there's relief. But when you're doing these intervals with the high lactate levels, as soon as you stop, it gets worse because the body doesn't, the lactate doesn't just disappear. Your body is still trying to process it. And you fall off the bike, you're physically exhausted, you, you kind of grind to halt, but then the pain just keeps getting worse and worse and the nausea builds as well. And it takes about 15 minutes for your body to be able to get back to, you know, some sort of level playing field. And then you kind of come out of it. You, you, got, you drag yourself off the floor and then you go, right, okay, let's, let's do another set. And, and it's, it's just this, it's, it's really hard to explain if you haven't experienced it, how committed you have to be mentally as well as this, yes. And you don't do this kind of training every day. This is, no. this would be um, once a week, um, that type of session, and you would do it leading up to a major championship for maybe six weeks or eight weeks in a row. So you didn't do it all the time. No. But when you did do it, you had to be in the right frame of mind because it's it's absolutely horrendous. <laughs> but you know, you know that these are the sessions that make the difference. These are the sessions that when you're coming on the last corner in a kilo and your vision's going blurred and you can barely hold the black line, yeah. that, that's what's going to get you across the line and win you that gold medal. Or the last lap of the team sprint at the Olympic Games and you know, you're know you really starting to tie up and you know that there's only a couple of thousandths in it between you and the French or whoever, That that is what gets you through it. And and the mindset is that, the, that this is what's making the difference. Is that what, I mean, yeah. you, you may have is. a tremendous a bit, a drive to, to put yourself through that. Yeah, it, for me, it was the fear, I think, of, of turning up on race day and thinking I could have done more, I could be yeah. better prepared. 
because yeah. if if you lose a race and you've done everything you can, then you then you accept it. You know, you have to you have to accept that some days you're not you're not the champion that the better man won. You shake his hand, you say well done. But if you if you get to that situation, you come second, you get beaten or whatever, and you think, yeah, that session I did four weeks ago, I didn't. I, I backed off one percent right. when it got really bad. I just I, I throttled back a little bit. My coach didn't spot it. Nobody else knew, but I knew. Or you know, I, I went out on that stag do to my mates, or I went to that wedding, <laughs> or I had a weekend off, or I had a few beers that night. You know, it could be one little thing that you look back and think, I wonder if I did that differently, would the end result have been different? Yeah. And I never wanted to be no. in that position where I had that doubt looking back on my career. I thought, you know what? If I'm going to do this, it's going to be all in. It has to be full commitment. And then you can accept the result. You, you give it your all. You do the best you can. We're all human. We can't win all the time. But at least if you've done your best and you truly have done your best in every single session, then you can arrive on race day and, and sort of try to enjoy it and then accept the result whichever way it goes. As Steve Peters would say, you go out there and you, you enjoy yourself, you express yourself, you have, you try to you know, see it as an opportunity, as this is the fun bit, this is the reward for all the hard work, this is the competition. Instead of going in thinking, I'm a bit undercooked here, I don't know if I'm going to be you know, good enough, you know, and you start thinking about making excuses and it sets you off down that negative route. What what are the demands of the, of the of the track sprinting discipline? I mean, you've talked to me about torque and about the speed of pedaling. The first thing, though, it's not entirely anaerobic. There's an aerobic element to cycling sprinting, isn't there? Because pure anaerobic is a pure ATP is is eight seconds, isn't it? But there's yeah, even the match sprint is yeah. So you look, I guess, with cold track sprinting that. It, under the umbrella of, you know, track sprinting, we'd have the kilo, which lasts a minute, which is yeah. very much, a, you know, a, a combination of anaerobic with anaerobic components. Then you've got the Kirin, where it's three laps of sprinting, but you've also got, you know, three or four laps building up to that. That's at 50, 60 Ks an hour. You have the team sprint, which could be anything from a, a 17 second effort if you're doing the first lap to 42, 43 seconds if you're doing the full full distance. And then the sprint, which, although, as you say, is only a, it's timed over the last 10 seconds, but or the last 200 metres, yeah. but it's, it's a three-lap effort. And the size of the gears that you race on means that you do have to start building up immediately, even though it looks slow at the start, the effort mm-hmm. to get it going. And you could have 12 or 13 races in a day. Yes. So recovery is a massive part of it. So it's not just, if all you do is look at the, the physiological demand of a 10-second sprint, then you could be misled and think, well, it's, it's purely anaerobic, but it's not. You, you do have to have the ability to, to recover. And, um, you know, we didn't do a lot of road work, but we did do, you know, probably every day we do an hour of recovery riding, low intensity, being on the bike. It was as much, I think, to, to not associate a bike with pain. Um, it was nice to be able to ride a bike at low intensity. And, when you know, if you didn't go out on the bike for gentle rides, for recovery rides, active recovery, then every single time you slung your leg over the bike, you'd be thinking, this is going to hurt. Here we go. You know, and you resent the bike. You start to hate it. Yes. Whereas, you know, it was nice to keep that bike, to keep the bike as, well, sometimes it's going to be flat out and it's going to be painful and hard work. Sometimes we're going to be riding for an hour in the sunshine. And, you know, isn't this a lovely thing to do? So it was, and I know a lot of the sprinters nowadays, not, not all of them do much road work. Um, because the gears are getting much bigger, they're using lower cadences. It's 
it, the, the sport is changing, but I still think there's, from a psychological perspective, I think there's a lot to be said from uh, still going out on your bike just, you know, just for the sake of riding your bike as, a, as an active form of recovery. And not seeing it as an instrument of torture. I mean, yes, you ride exactly. a bike now, don't you? As a, as a, as yeah. a hobby. And the first time I ever met you was on top of outdoors. And uh, <laughs> when you, uh, you, you rode the Etap de Tour, and you actually uh, said, well, at least I've done all my road work in one day. <laughs> exactly. I got my, a whole year's worth of riding in one day. Yeah, so basically, um, it was, I think it was, was it 2006? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. It was the end of end of the, the track season. So we'd had the Commonwealth Games and the World Championships. And I was in the off season, just getting back into training. Yeah. You know, you have about six weeks of just riding your bike and doing, you know, you are doing stuff on the track, but not it's not too structured. And there was an opportunity that popped up. So do you want to come and ride the, 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 the tap? There's a few British cycling um, the sponsors and supporters and some of the coaching staff were doing it. And it was Jason Queeley, my teammate, was doing it. And that, he was the one that persuaded me. He said, come on, we'll, I'm doing it. It'll be good fun. We'll just take our time. I said, but, you know, longest ride I've done is two hours. You know, it's going to be seven, eight hours potentially. He said, yeah, yeah, we'll take our time. We'll stop and we'll, you know, make sure we eat plenty and everything else. And then, you know, so on whatever day it was on, I think it was on a Thursday or midweek, like two days before I was doing a standing start, you know, 65 metre effort. <laughs> and then two days later, it was 120 miles up, you know, um, the Col d'Isward and yeah. Lothre and Alpe d'Huez. And it was just a, a really cool thing to do, just to do something completely different, knowing that this, it wasn't with any mind, you know, it wasn't as part of my training. It was just a fun a fun thing to do, um, but it was 35 degrees that day. It was red hot. And I remember, you know, getting to the top of Alpe d'Huez and it wasn't, it wasn't even as if you could attack it and, you know, sort of suffer up the hill. I was so, so fatigued and so gone that if you, if I pushed too hard, if I tried to apply too much force, my muscles were just cramping up. So I was just plodding up this hill. And I'll always remember the feeling when I saw the 4k to go board on Alpe d'Huez and I thought, in my mind, in my world, 4K is the 4K team pursuit, which takes, you know, three minutes, 50 or whatever. <laughs> I thought, well, we're almost there. You know, it's only 4K to go. And then I looked down at my speedo and I was doing 8Ks an hour. And I suddenly thought, yes. this is, this is still a half hour to go. This is going to be absolutely horrendous. So, yeah, it was when I got off the bike, I, I thought, yeah, I've made the right choice. I'm definitely not a road rider. Yes, I remember some of your very colourful comments when you, when you finished it. But I must say, you were you were ahead of the rest of the British cycling team. You, you put at least 20 minutes into Dave, Dave Railson. Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a competitive person. You know, even, <laughs> yeah, even when I'm a fish out of water, I still want to do the best I can. But yeah, it was, I really enjoyed it. And yeah. the, the only mistake I made was wearing a rainbow jersey. So I had my, I was world champion at the time and I went in my um, GB world champs kit Yep. And everybody just shouted, were shouting Tom Boonen at me, you know, thinking, ah, oh, there's some, some guy that's bought a road jersey, you know, Ale Boonen, you know, sort of taking the mickey. And I'm like, no, no, I'm actually, I am actually a world champion. You know, I'm not just some... <laughs> you didn't have to stop uh, and tell him that. Some guy that bought it in the shop, yeah. Let's get back to the track sprinting and get to, to the tech uh, and being part of British cycling. Well, one of the things Chris Bowman told me ages ago, when when you first uh, were the first designing a British cycling bike, was to, to the first thing was to build a frame you couldn't break. Is that is that true? <laughs> yeah, it kind of it. So they they they, they for all the different parameters, um, they would then add you know I think hundred percent on top of 
what they thought was required, you know, yeah. in terms of structural rigidity, crash impacts, um, all of this, the, the, the boundaries or, the, or the, the parameters for design. And I think they estimated we're going to need, you know, maybe 600 Newton meters of torque would be the, the most any sprinter is going to be producing. So we'll make it tolerant up to 900 or 850 Newton meters or, and then, and that's car, car motor territory, isn't it? That amount well, of Well, yeah. So if you put that into context, if you look at, you know, a Ferrari V12 engine yeah. will produce a roundabout, or it depends which one, you know, some of the newer turbo ones are a lot more torquey, but, you know, like a, a Ferrari Enzo um, 2002, that was their, their hypercar that came yeah. out, um, V12, and that, that was producing about 650 Newton metres of torque. Yeah, and that's that's obviously at the very you know they can be doing that at two thousand RPM. Yeah. We're producing it at twenty RPM or ten okay. RPM. That, that first half rev when you yeah. go out the start gate and that first push is hitting seven hundred newton meters of torque or whatever. So we did we did we had this um, really cool ergometer that was built with double um, ratio setup. It's got like a you know a huge big flywheel at the back. If you're, your average person stood on the pedals, but they just don't turn, you know, it's so much resistance. <laughs> it's like, it's crazy. And um, I mean, we do that for doing these, for testing torque and for also for doing sort of basically strength work on the bike. Yeah. And when we got that, we measured the torque, you know, we, I was producing over 700 newton meters of torque. And when that figure was then released back to the bike designers, they were like, yeah, we're going to have to make the bike a bit stronger. <laughs> we're going to need play. a stronger bike. <laughs> we're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the tech. I mean, uh, on the tech side, one of the things you told me is that British Cycling had a, this this system of development and marginal gains. Everybody's talked about that and the, the marginal gains. And this used to confuse the French, didn't it? You 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 used to take these marginal gains all in one go at the Olympic cycle, didn't you? Uh, rather yes. than so we what well, we you know other countries have kind of cottoned on to it. But what we would do instead of if we got a new set of handlebars or new wheels or skin suit or aero helmet, we wouldn't bring it out and use it straight away. So the mm. temptation is you've got a World Cup coming up yeah. or a World Championship. Well, let's let's use the best kit we've got and get the best result. Whereas we were still riding, I mean, it's different now, but back in the day, you know, we'd be riding in a an 85-pound skin suit that you could buy in the shops <laughs> and, you know, uh, a fairly basic, yeah, all basic off-the-peg kit, helmets, shoes, a lot. And still able to be competitive at world level, win world titles. Um, but then when it came to the Olympics, you had, it was like Christmas morning, you're kind of unwrapping all these new goodies and yeah. you, you had been, you'd been training on them, but only for the last, probably the last maybe five or six weeks. So you have this huge feeling of benefit. Of, wow, you know, it's all new gear. And, you know, you know the feeling, even when you get a new pair of shoes or you, and some new clothes or whatever, you, and you put them on, in general, you, you, it feels nice. It's yeah. new and yeah. it's different. It gives you a little lift. And you imagine not just the fact it's new, but you you know that these guys have been working away for four years to create this the best possible setup and bike and position and everything for you. And you're getting to use it when you're physically coming to your peak as well. And you, you feel you just feel as if every base has been covered and you're ready for this this big day. And and not only that, your rivals know that oh god, they're you know what what are they bringing out now? What's what are they going to be racing on? And and it, it just it was just that again going back to the feeling of being prepared and being ready yeah. and knowing that you've done everything you can. Everybody, not just you and your physical training, but the equipment, your diet, 
travel, rest, everything is is the best it can possibly be. And other countries have caught on to that, as I say. They do it. And yeah. they're, you know, they, they're playing it more cagely now and they bring yeah. in their equipment. But then the UCI get wise to it too. And it's like, well, you have to bring anything that you want to race at Olympics. You have to have raced for, I think it's 12 months before. Oh, right. Right. So it, it then comes out earlier. So you see yeah. the bikes and the equipment um, in earlier parts of the, the, the Olympic cycle. Yeah. And also yeah. you get people who, the knowledge spreads. So it's, it's the... It happens in cycles all the time. You look back to um, the Australians were dominating in the mid nineties. You know, once once the Australian Institute of Sport was set up, and then they they invested as a country. They invested in sport. They started having huge success across the board. And then ten years after that, you know, post Sydney Olympics, all the coaches from Australia then tend to to go around the rest of the world. They get poached, yeah. and the knowledge and the experience and, and their approach it then filters into other countries. We did it. We had Martin Barris um, yep. as the sprint coach in the early 2000s. And and it's gone the opposite way now. So GB were the biggest you know, top nation from 2008 to 2016. And they arguably are still now. Um, but a lot of the coaches, a lot of the riders you see now, you go to the track centre, a World Cup, you know, last weekend at the Track Nations Cup. And it's just all ex-GB riders yep. and staff in different yeah. coloured jerseys working in different teams. <laughs> the knowledge and the experience and the ideas are now, are very much being um, spread around the world and you can see how other countries are taking a similar similar approach. And, and that, you know, it's, it's the way it always is and it's, it's good for the sport because you don't want one team or one country no. to dominate. For, you do when you're an athlete, obviously. Yeah, but, um, you do when you're, you know, when you're that as, country, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. You know, I guess it's a bit like Michael Schumacher or Lewis Hamilton or... Usain Bolt or whoever, when you're dominating, you want to, you know, if it's you, you want to keep winning. And, and but people, you know, on the outside are like, well, this is getting boring now. We don't want to see the same person win or the same country win or the same team, same team win all the time. We want to see different faces and different people. Yeah. Um, but to stay at the top for a long period of time, it it almost looks easy when it's when it is someone like Lewis Hamilton that just knocks yeah. out win after win after win. But almost it almost gets harder. The more you the more you succeed, the longer you, you last, the harder it gets. Hard it gets to succeed. As, as Lewis Hamilton's proving this year. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and aerodynamics in sprinting. I mean, uh, we know that aerodynamics, uh, the 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 effort you have to make to go a little bit faster increases as a square of the, of the, of the speed increases. But I mean, because sprinters are going so fast that aerodynamics is is absolutely magnified isn't it i mean what you you told me one thing about you it took you a long time to to get, sprint with your elbows in little little you used to you used to practice with different in wind tunnels but different little things where you held your hands it was that important yeah yeah so it's funny because you you before you get the data before you have the instrumentation to measure and to see it in in black and white, it's all about intuition or, you know, cycling was a very traditional sport. It's become, it's got drag kicking and screaming into the 21st century and mm-hmm. now science is absolutely at the heart of it. But for many years, it was all about, well, this is the way it's been done, always done, and therefore that's the way we're going to do it in the future. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it took certain individuals, people like Greg LeMond, you know, making a big step change in aerodynamics. Yeah. In the tour in '89, I think it was when he used tri bars and aero helmets yep. and beat Pignon by what eight nine seconds. Yes. And but sprinting, it was always about well, you're not on the tri bars. You're it's a traditional you know traditional position, drop handlebars. 
aerodynamics aren't as important as, let's say, the, the time trial, the team pursuit, because it's all about, you know, power output and it's about decision making and split second. But it's, as you say, it's the opposite because the faster you go, your drag goes up exponentially. The, the more important it is to be aero, the faster you go. So, so it's taken a long time for sprinters or for coaches to really get their heads around that and go, well, actually, these are the guys, not just the team pursuit who we spend hours and hours in wind tunnels and tweaking positions and helmets and tucks. Mm-hmm. The sprinters need to really be looking at their, their aero position. And it's very hard once you've established a riding style or riding position to change it. So, yes. you know, from an early, early years, I used to watch Michael Hoopner and Darren Hill and these guys, yeah. massive, big, huge arms and elbows <laughs> out and, you know, battling against each other. And you think, well, that's what I want to be. So it's elbows out and yeah. get, get, you know, biting the stem. And then you realise that's the completely wrong position to be in. You want to yes. be as aero as possible, get the elbows in. And it's it's fine when you're riding steadily to get your elbows in and get tucked and low and, and make it all look nice and smooth. But it's that last half lap when you're battling side to side that you start creeping forward on the nose of your saddle. Yep. As you come forward, your elbows come out and it's like a parachute catching the wind. So, so it slows it's, you down. Yeah. yeah. So the, one of the biggest things I say to younger riders now when they're just getting in is don't worry about, you know, peak power outputs and all the data and everything else focus on your position focus on getting a really good riding style because once you once you set that in stone once you establish the ability to to get into a low and long position and and narrow you you then will learn how to produce power in that position but if you establish a bad position trying to work it back in later years will be virtually impossible so um and as you say in the wind tunnel in the air once in the later part of my career, once we started using the wind tunnel and you start to see how, you know, we'd be using it to maybe look at the difference between two different helmets or a different type of um, component on the bike, the forks or whatever. But you also would get a little bit of freeform time at the end of each session where you, you can just see a real-time feedback on your, your drag coefficient and just moving your thumb up or down or your head up or down or, you know, the smallest change you could see, it would go up yeah. half a newton or you know say your drag your, your drag in newtons was maybe um 40 or 35 it would go up by 0.2 or 0.3 and and you'd suddenly realize well that could equate to just the smallest movement and then you realize when you're by doing that it, it could slow you down by half a second over 200 meters so aerodynamics is like the, the two biggest step changes people say well what why are the sprinters going so fast now compared to when I was racing and compared to 10 years before that, mm-hmm. that there's two reasons that the biggest one is the, the size of the gears they're using now. So the efficiency of pedaling at 120 RPM versus 150 RPM or 145 mm-hmm. RPM. Um, and they, they don't slow down. So the bigger the gear, it's more efficient, it takes longer to wind it up, but they're going maybe half a second faster than I was. You know, I did a 9.8 in Beijing fastest qualifier in, in 2008 and they're doing 9.3s 9.2s now um and it's apps and but what's interesting the power outputs haven't changed they haven't got more powerful but they have found ways to make themselves more efficient so using bigger gears um less of a drop off in the second half of the 200 and they can reach a much higher peak speed and then the second thing the big gears and the aerodynamics, looking at the position on the bike, looking at the equipment, looking at the material, the skin suits. And this has had a profound effect on the tactics now, hasn't it? In, in the match sprint, I'm talking about the match sprint, in the days when you're talking about Michael Hubner and the outdoor tracks, 
it was it was the slipstream. You sat in somebody's slipstream and then waited for the right moment, and then you came around. But now you use the slipstream like Formula One car drivers do, don't you? You go into it and use it as a slingshot. When the smaller the gears, like in the old days, this nineties with Hubner and Newand and and Fiedler and these guys, the, the cadence was so high and so inefficient. Yes, that you couldn't. You, you would always drop off. So if you if you started your sprint with a lap and a half to go, you yeah. would be you would be slowing down as you came into the home straight. And therefore, if you're sitting behind, sheltering, you would wait and wait and wait. And then as they started to, to slow down, you would just jump straight past. But obviously they knew that, so no one wanted to go from the front. So then there would be the track stands, there would be a lot more um, cat and mouse. Whereas now, everybody's riding huge gears. They know they can't hang around too much at the start because oh. you've got to get the gears going. You haven't got... On the smaller gear, you had the option to, to go... And then to stall and to go again, and to, you could have two or three or four bites of the apple. Whereas now you have this, imagine to get a big gear rolling is like trying to get a boulder <laughs> moving. It takes huge amount of effort. You've got to keep it going, but you can't stop it and then start again. You've got one chance. And so the tactics are, are very much about deciding how you're going to use that strategy. When are you going to you know, use that one cartridge, make that one big effort? Yeah. And once you've got it going, you've got to commit and stick with it. So so the races tend to be a bit more of a drag race now. Um, as you say, they're using the slingshot, creating a big gap, and then rushing at your opponent. And the closer you get, yeah. the more of a, a slingshot, more of a, a pocket of air you're riding into, the lower the, the air pressure is, so that the faster you're accelerating. Yeah. And then the aim is to be passing with so much speed that you get straight out and straight back in again, or straight past them, um, and win the race. But... It's still tactical. It's not people go, ah, oh, there's no tactics these days. There are, no, it's still, it's but it's, it's a different, it's yeah. a very different style of, of racing. And and the fatigue that it creates by, you know, every race, you're having to attack these huge gears to get them going. So even if you're Harry Lavracen, Olympic and world champion, you know, in the first round against someone who's at the bottom seed, you still have to get that gear going. You still yeah. have to put a huge effort in. And that has a physical toll. Whereas in the old days, if you're riding smaller gears, you could you can win, uh, you know, a first round match without expending too much energy. Conserve energy throughout the day and save it for the, the semi-finals or the finals. But now it's it's really physically tough, and you see how how absolutely shattered these guys are at the end of a you know a twelve race day in a World Cup, mm. or at the end of a you know a four or five day World Championship where they've done the sprint, the Kieran, and the team sprint. To give us an idea of those gears, I mean, I know there's different sizes of pictures of, of chain ring and, 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 and chain now, but what, what, what sizes are we talking about? They're, t- you know, almost, almost as big as you can get. So some of them are, you know, 66, 12 um, <laughs> to sprint on. And, and you just think, <laughs> and it, it, it's just, it is unbelievable how, so, and, and when they get that big, like for the sprint time trial, you've got two and a half laps to wind up before you go yeah. for your flying effort. So you've got to get that going. It's all very well, you know, anyone can ride a gear that size once it's wound up. You know, if you come down a massive big hill yes. and you're on top of the gear, then you, oh, I'm flying now. It's nice and easy. I'm in the, you're in that sort of, um, you know, that target band of, of cadence. But when your cadence is down at 65, 70, and you're trying to climb the track and you're, you've got to put so much effort in just to get up to speed. So you look at someone like Lavracen, in the old days, you, you'd start your sprint under the scoreboard at the top of the track, at the bell, you get out the saddle and you go hell for leather until you sit down and then you, you cross the line and the, the clock starts. But now he's doing a standing effort at the top of the track the lap before just to get 
up to the to the right point to be going fast enough to get on top of the bike before you start his actual proper flying effort. So it's almost like a two lap effort just to do a flying two hundred, and it, so it's like a double jump, sprinting out the saddle just to get it into that that ballpark. Yeah. Then you go again on, from that. So it's it's really interesting to watch and to see how much it's changed and and to. So you to, it's a whole new puzzle to work out for the coaches and for the riders. But you, you've seen tremendous evolution in sprinting and also in, in the funding. I mean, you, were, you started your career pre-lottery days and, mm. and, and went into... And, and some of the lovely stories you told me about you and Craig McLean coming up with your own ideas for sprinting. Tell them about Craig McLean's 40-kilogram bike. Yeah. So, yeah, I can't really claim any credit at all from this because Craig was always the... He was the, he the, the was genius behind the training methods. I... I just kept getting dragged along by him and, and you know, I was just in this lucky position. And it happened a lot in my career where I was in the right place at the right time to learn and to be inspired and to be mentored by other people. So Craig McLean, Jason Queeley, um, you know, all sorts of um, people who just were amazing to learn from and to, to, to work with. But Craig was brilliant. So he, you know, pre, pre-lottery funding, we didn't have an indoor track. So we had to train outdoors all year round. The, the track at Meadowbank was shut from September onwards till April or May. So in the winter months, you're trying to find ways to do sprint training. You're trying to find ways to do strength training. Mm. And Craig thought, well, I'm, I'm going to basically load my bike up with as much weight as possible, make it as heavy as possible. So we got pannier rack where he strapped um, two 10 kilo, 10 kilo discs onto the back. <laughs> he had two big, massive uh, drinks bottles, which he put lead shot in and strapped it to the down tube. And um, and then we would go out to this little, near the airport, there was, was this sort of road that was, didn't go anywhere and it was flat and wide and smooth and there was no traffic on it. And at the end of it, there was a little hill with a, a kind of stone wall at, you know, at arm's height the whole way up it. And we used to do these 10, ten rev efforts next to the wall and you'd hold your brakes on. So when you got, <laughs> to, the, when you got to the sort of six and 12 o'clock on the cranks where you had no no purchase you would release the brakes a little bit and then as you got back over the top of the revolution you'd squeeze the brakes on and you were kind of going you know literally at that sort of pace with everything you had and the, the bike's bending like that you know it's a steel <laughs> an old steel road bike that was screaming for mercy um but it was a way of trying to make the strength gains from the gym a bit more specific so you're working on the bike in that position taxing your body in, in a in a in a cycling specific way and trying to make that transition from basic strength the basic movements into a slightly more cycling specific way yes it's wonderful and um and then of course the lottery funding came um and originally it was a bit of a bone for contention for sprinters because uh, Dave Brailsford spent what he had on the, on the pursuiters didn't they and, and yeah in Sydney the sprinters pursuits got two bronze medals but the sprinters came up with a gold and a, a silver yeah, so it was even before Dave was around. It was Peter Keane was the yeah. performance director back then. Yes, and, and initially, so the, I mean, you look back now, and it was it was a really wise way to do it. So, yes. lottery funding was was um, announced. It was a, a, a finite pot of money, and sports were, were given a share based on their previous Olympic success, the previous um, sort of couple of cycles, and we had Chris Boardman with his gold in Barcelona and we had, he had a bronze in the, the time trial in Atlanta. And I think Max Chandry got a medal as well in the road race. Yep. So cycling as a sport did pretty well in that initial divvying out of the money. And then a lot of the sports, it's like, well, you can choose how you spend this money. So cycling, Peter Keane thought, well, 
we can either spread it thinly and give it to grassroots and plan for the future and build up slowly. But it, it really, the, the next round of funding will be based on how we do in, in Sydney at these yeah. Olympics. So his view is let's, let's fund the guys that have the best chance of winning a medal in the short term. If they deliver, then we'll get more money. Then we can spread it a bit wider and so on and so on. So start, instead of doing the kind of the ground up, it was almost the, the inverted pyramid. You start with the, the guys at the top and fund them and get instant success or the, the best chance of success. You had mm-hmm. Raymond Bree, Chris Boardman, Yvonne McGregor, the team Pursuiters. Um, mm-hmm. And we were seen as this kind of outside, you know, we were the, the, the outliers, these <laughs> strange guys, not traditional cycling, you know, it's not endurance cycling. Nobody really knew how to train us. There was no, I mean, there was, we had a couple of coaches. Marshall Thomas was the first person who was um, entrusted with looking after us and he did a, a great job, but we didn't really have the support financially. We were just kind of almost tolerated in the early years. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, Craig McLean was doing well, but not enough to really, he wasn't winning medals back in the late 90s. And, and it was really in 99 in Berlin, Craig and Jason and me, um, in the team sprint, we won silver medal against all odds, a real surprise against, you know, what was expected. Um, and we came back with a silver medal and realised we've got a chance going into Olympic year in Sydney. And and then they started to sort of look after us a bit better. And we, we actually got bikes, you know, we were riding our own bikes up until that point. And, and we got a coach. We had Martin Barris, who was the West Australian coach and looked after Darren Hill and some of the, the big Aussie guys. And we start to feel as if we were being appreciated and we were, you know, a, an important part of the team. But up until that point, we did feel like outsiders. But I didn't, we didn't really mind that. It was like, well, fair enough. I understand the reason why. Um, but we just cracked on and, and enjoyed it and did the best we could and, and knew that we were going to get better eventually. But I don't think any of us dreamed that, that Jason Queeley was going to win the Golden City. That was, that was the breakthrough moment. That was such an incredible thing to see. And when you have someone who is the Olympic champion in your team, you yeah. know, you suddenly you feel a bit an inch taller and you feel like, well, I'm training with the Olympic champion. I get to, to benefit from that every single day. And, I, you know, we, we get to race with him in the team sprint. And, yeah, of course, we won the silver medal in, in the team sprint in Sydney the day after Jason won the kilo. Yeah. And that, it was, it was like a real turning point in my career. And certainly for Jason, that was... That was the, the, well, the biggest day in his whole career. But um, yeah, if, if, having that belief and that, that, that it wasn't just other countries that were Olympic champions and it happened to other people. No, it can happen to us. And, and here's Jason, my, just my mate, this, this normal guy who yeah. I know how hard he works and he's, he's come from humble background straight into the sport you know, in his late 20s. Five years later, he's Olympic champion. So yeah, really inspiring and, and really... For me, it was a real step change. And it was a step change for British Cycling as well, wasn't it? Because it grew yeah. to more funding. Well, well, I've kept you a long time. Let's, let's finish with some quick questions. Um, what, can, what can endurance cyclists learn from sprinters? What can endurance riders learn from sprinters? Um, well, I guess whether it's learning from watching sprinting or seeing how they train, I, I, I think it's endurance cyclists as an example, in the old days, never used to, to, in their diet, they only ever focused on carbohydrates. It was about fueling for performance. And protein was seen as this thing that if you eat protein or if you take too much protein in your diet, you're going to end up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're going to have massive muscles. (laughs) And I think endurance athletes 
it sounds ridiculous now because most understand it, but they've they during my time, um, certainly in GB cycling, the endurance riders started to understand the importance of protein, the importance yeah. of um, recovery and and fueling correctly, mm-hmm. but also looking at the need to do um, whether it's resistance training or some form of sprint training to to improve the change of pace. You can you can never have too much power, and it might be that you're a time trialist or a, an endurance athlete, but to have that change of pace or to have a the ability to produce more power is always useful and to understand how you do that and to look at what sprinters do and how they train and not do exactly the same thing, but to, to, to utilize that training methodology in, in an appropriate way for them, it can, it can help. I think. Well, what, if you're going to pick one sporting achievement, what's your proudest? Well, I, I think being Olympic champion and therefore my first Olympic gold medal, that was, that was the thing I'm most proud of. Um, becoming Olympic champion and then for the rest of your life, you know, you, you could retire the day after you've become Olympic champion. You you have that gold medal and you've joined this very, very exclusive club, which some some people, I think there's two types of athletes out there, the ones who say they always knew they were going to do it and that they they always believed in themselves and they, you know, it was just a matter of time. And then there's the ones who say, I never thought I was going to do it. And I never, <laughs> never you know, there was always other people that happened to. And that's that's the category I fell into. I I just assumed that Olympic champions were a different breed. They were born di- differently to the rest of us, and they, you know, they were destined for greatness from the very beginning. And that I wasn't part of that group. And you know, it, it was it really going back to Jason Queeley. It was Jason's win in Sydney that opened my eyes to the yeah. fact that this is possible. And and it, you know, if you want it enough, if you work hard enough, you've got to be lucky. You've got to have the planets have got to align. You need you know luck on your side at the same time. But if you you can. You can increase your chances of the odds of winning and increase your chances of being lucky if you work hard every single day. And yeah, becoming Olympic champion, they read out your name, you know, from Great Britain, Chris Hoy, the Olympic champion. And you think, <laughs> bloody hell, how, how did this happen? <laughs> did you, know, happen? you know, starting out at Meadowbank, age 14, 15, yeah. um, being terrified of these big, steep bankings and, and thinking, I don't know if I really want to do this to then stepping on the podium and winning an Olympic gold medal. So it, it, it just shows that anybody can achieve way more than they think is possible. Yes. I mean, absolutely. It doesn't matter what it is you're doing, cycling or sports or business or any ambitions you have, mm-hmm. you, you, you can surprise yourself at what is possible. And, and if you, I, I believe that for me anyway, the way I, my sort of mind works, you've got to, A, you've got to aim high. You've got to have a, a goal that really excites you. But then you've got to have a plan and you've got to write it down and you've got to have some some sort of map of how you're going to get from where you are now to where you want to be. Right. And that's that's kind of what I did. And it didn't I didn't know all these things to start off with. I learned them over the years. And of course, with hindsight, everything looks sensible and easy and, and you know it makes sense. And when we're struggling and when we're not achieving what we want or when it's difficult, it can always it just seems like there's no way through or there's no no way that it's gonna work. But all you can do is is do your best every single day. And, and keep plugging away, and eventually, no matter what it is you're aiming for, you're gonna you're gonna get as close as you can possibly get. You can't guarantee success, but you've got to give yourself the best chance. Well, on on that note, on that inspirational note, uh, we'll end the, this this interview. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. 